Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. This is a special live edition of the podcast, recorded at the Cake Shop in New York City's Lower East Side as part of NYC PodFest. Thanks to PodFest founder Jeremy Ween and his co-producer Andrea Simmons for thinking of me, as Last Things First was in fact the last podcast added to the schedule, thanks to a last-minute cancellation from another show. We barely made it, but we done gone and did it. So let's get to it! Welcome to the NYC Podfest stage. The Comics Comic presents Last Things First. Oh, thank you. Hello. Hi, I'm Sean McCarthy. I'm the founding editor of the Comics Comic, and with me here is Dan McCoy. Hello. You may have uh, seen his work Mondays through Thursdays on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Or you may be familiar with his voice on the Flophouse podcast. Or you may have seen me peeking out of the green room earlier. Welcome to this special live uh, New York City podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks. So, last things first, uh, I know that you could be accepting a uh, Peabody Award. I don't know if I could be. I don't know. I never really checked into that because I was too embarrassed to. But I know that uh, my co-host, Elliot Kalen, is there right now accepting a Peabody uh, with the rest of the uh, higher-ups at The Daily Show. He was a head writer, so I think he has the special uh, dispensation. I don't know. I don't think I get a Peabody. Wait, where do you fall, where do you fall on the list? I mean, I'm a writer. It's, it's you know, it, it, there was a flow chart. It's, yeah. You know, it's fairly high, I would like to think. Are you on the call sheet? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not on the call. I've been on the show a couple of times. Uh, in little tiny... Uh, Does Comedy Central know who you are? No. No, they don't. They do not know who I am. That is... How does this work? <laughs> How does what work? This podcast? I'm trying to... Th- I'm figuring it out as we go. Uh, what do you, what, what you want to know? I'm willing to answer any question. Well, not any questions. Okay. So, last things first... Uh, for the Flophouse podcast, what's what's the last movie that you got into a violent debate with your co-hosts about? I don't think that we we tend to all agree. I mean, I'm a little softer on movies than they are. Like we watched Burnt, the Bradley Cooper is an asshole uh, chef movie, and I kind of liked it. I didn't hate it like uh, the rest of them, but uh, but but we're all really close friends, so it doesn't. Ma- I mean, like. On the one hand, that means we can be assholes to each other, and boy, are they to me uh, a lot. But uh, but you know, we, I think we respect each other's opinions. We don't we don't fight about movies. We fight about less important things. What's the last thing you fought about with them? Uh, maybe I would like them to let me talk a little bit more. Yeah. There's, you know, I think a lot of podca- podcasts have a lot of over-talking, and yeah. they have very strong personalities, and I so have a more everyman personality. So this is kind of your dream. Then. Yeah, that's right. 
is to you're have, very is to be my guest. Yeah, you're very. Uh, what's the word? All about you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I baffled that people have come to see this, but I there appreciate are it. there are actual people here. Yeah. To see you. They're, they're not here they're to see me. They're making noise. <laughs> well, Dan. When you when you were a kid, what was was the dream to be debating movies and to be writing satire? Uh, what was the dream when you were a kid? When I was a, uh, to be a detective, but it, then I discovered, then I realized that being a detective was much less Sherlock Holmes and more uh, taking pictures of sad people in mm-hmm. hotels. As they had sex with one another. What what age was that that you re- realized that? Uh, probably later than it should have been. I mean, maybe like eleven. I feel like that's later. I mean, like I, I, I don't know. I feel like to think that things are like all locked room mysteries at eleven is still kind of embarrassing. Okay. You know. But then I wanted to be a movie director. Which is something I actually pursued. I went to uh, the Savannah College of Art and Design for a whole trimester. Oh, a whole trimester. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, I dropped out very quickly when I realized... After one trimester? After one trimester, which at the time felt like such failure. Because my whole family is uh, full of academics. They've all got you know, higher degrees. My... Mm. Uh, dad has a master of divinity. My mother is uh, has a master in library science. My uh, brother has both a master of divinity and he was uh, he's a lawyer, so he has that going for him. My other brother uh, has an MA in fine art in in in, uh, in writing and also whatever you need to be a curator of a museum, which is what he is right now. I don't know the details. And I dropped out of film school, which I was, you know, I was already pursuing something frivolous, and then I dropped out of it. What did you What did you tell your family? Uh, I just, I mean, they were supportive, though. I mean, like, it was all me thinking that, that I was a failure. Like, I... Well, how did you broach it to them? I just said, I'm coming home. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I did live <laughs> at home for a while. So, okay. I mean, I was in the wilderness a, a lot after I graduated from college. And I, you know, I realized that I like acting. I like writing. I like editing. I don't like everything else that a director has to do, which is a lot of organizational work. And I'm too lazy for that. So even this is an effort for you. Oh, I mean, this is fun. I mean, I can talk about myself. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'll take that. Okay. Uh, but I thought for a while then after that I was going to be an actor, which is why I came to New York, uh, because in where, college. Where were, so you, were in, you went to school in Savannah. Where were you from? Uh, I'm from Illinois. I'm from a okay. tiny town in the middle of Illinois, about 5,000 people. It's half an hour away from Peoria which is a city known for whether or not entertainment is bland enough to play there. <laughs> so if it plays in Peoria. Yeah, exactly. It plays on the Flophouse. Yeah. So uh, I really wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. Okay. Yeah. So how did you decide New York and not L.A.? Well, um, the woman I was engaged to uh, at the time. Uh, Hold on. 
Well, no, I, I married her, but that's... Oh, okay. No, that's no longer the case. <laughs> so that's that, that's a recent development that that is no longer the case. Uh, we Breaking won't get into news. that. Uh, but but she, uh, she was interning at a lot of magazines. Like, mm-hmm. the, the publishing industry is all in New York, uh, such as it is. I mean, it is no longer in New York, but that's because the publishing industry is dying. Um <laughs> Publishing is something your parents owned and brought home. Yeah, yeah. The, but she, she, for those of you listening, yeah. The, there were there used to be a thing called magazines before the <laughs> internet existed. <laughs> I used to be a newspaper reporter. Really? Yeah, that used to be a thing. And now you're making. And now you're <laughs> interviewing people on podcasts. This uh, is what I got now. Yeah. Uh, but she, she brought me here. Mm-hmm. I was scared of it. Like I, I was living in Minneapolis for a while because, okay. yeah, I mean, it's a nice town. It's a lovely town. If you're trying to be in the entertainment industry, like it's not, <laughs> I mean, mystery science theater 3000 is no longer filming there. So that was the one television show you could get in. Garrison Keillor. At, I apply. I had a friend who, uh, uh-huh. Who did? Who contributed material there? And I was doing whatever I could, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I put in a few, you know, whatever the Cowboys, Dusty, whatever, and <laughs> Lonesome George, and whatever it is. <laughs> do you guy? I, did, I wrote a guy noir, you know. Yeah. I wrote. Do a you want to try to guy do you noir? Try to write some spec now for <laughs> for Garrison. I think he's still looking for talent. I he's. He's about to retire. That I mean, after oh. years and years and years, and he—I don't know—he's giving it over to some indie musician. Is this right? Not, I mean, does anyone know you? who it is? Okay. I don't know. Hmm. But he's—he's uh, he's finally out of there, so his reign of terror is <laughs> over. <laughs> he's been ruling NPR with an iron fist, or Minnesota Public Radio. Sorry, what, they're not all the same thing. What did you What did you think of uh, of him in that kind of comedy when you were? You know, younger? I actually grew up with it. I make fun yeah. of it now, but I actually, I think, I think it used to be better. I think that people who make fun of Garrison Keillor forget that he was really good for a lot of years before he sort of, you know. Slid off into what he is now, <laughs> but he's a brilliant man. I mean, he can go out and improvise a long story <laughs> and make it work. Right, and that's that's amazing to me. So when you moved to New York, you were looking to be an actor. Yeah, and I. How, how did that go? I got headshots, and <laughs> I feel like that was the most commitment I made to the. <laughs> process i mean i i i had in the back of my mind that i might want to be a comedy writer too uh so i sort of drifted towards comedy like i went to the ucb and did the whole thing there and i met with a friend of like i met with the son of a friend of my sister-in-law's from church who (laughs) wait a second yeah who uh, who was a comedy writer who was willing to give me advice? This is uh, Charlie Grandy, who went on to like he was on Saturday Night Live at the time. He went on to be uh, a writer for The Office. I think he maybe went on to 
something like Modern Family from there. I don't know. I've seen his name in a lot of hit shows since then. So he's very successful. But you knew him as... He was the son son. of someone that my sister-in-law went to church with. And he was nice enough to meet with me. How how do you even get that meeting? I just he gave, they gave me his email and who gave you his email? My sister in law. Okay. And what he, do you say to your sister in law to get that email? She did it out of you know she just shot it to me out of nowhere you know and she's like Dan I I hear you like the funny things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well she Here's knew a that funny person. I I had I had written comedy in college. I had a couple of radio shows one of them actually was my friend stefan's radio show which was a, a shameless ripoff actually of prairie home companion ah Ca- now it all comes home called the, the international house of radio where <laughs> stefan emulated garrison keeler right down to singing a lot of songs even though maybe he shouldn't have mm-hmm uh, and I, you know, I had my own, I had a, a, a sketch comedy show that I did for the radio. I had an improv group called Stop Laughing that I started myself. And so she knew that I was interested in this and she just shot me off this thing. And I met with Charlie Grandy in a Starbucks and he gave me the single most important piece of advice I've gotten in comedy, which is don't be a dick. Mm. Because there are a lot of talented people out there. And a lot of them are difficult to work with. Okay. And if you want to be successful, just don't be a dick. Like, I I feel like you should embroider that on a pillow (laughs) if you want to be a comedy writer. So you come out of that meeting with Charlie Grandy. Yeah. Knowing don't be a dick. Mm Mm-hmm. Did he give you anything else? Uh, he was the one who directed me over to the UCB. I would have known that, I think, if I stuck around New York anyway. I mean, it's hard to not be connected in some way what, with that theater. What year was this? This was, uh, I moved here, <laughs> as with as with many people, I have to, like, put it in context with September 11th. That's how I remember. And I, I moved to the city after that. So like, you have an alibi. Yeah, I was... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I do. It was it was tw- it was 2002. Okay, and so the UCB was still in its old uh, space that was about the size of the room that we're in right now. Right. Um, before it moved to its new space, which is marginally better, beneath a supermarket, <laughs> beneath a Gristini's. With obstructed views because there are huge pillars everywhere holding up that Gristides. Uh But even then, it was like, even then, the UCB was kind of too big for me. Like, I went through the whole program there, and I realized that the only way to get anywhere was to constantly be hanging around with people who did shows there and always be available and always do, at like, it was such a networking place, and there right. were so many people there that I loved it. But the fact that I had to do that and the fact that I had to continually pay $300 to take another class meant that I was looking for something different that I could get in on the ground floor of, which is kind of why I started podcasting. Because at the time, I you know, like the, the Flophouse is eight years old now, and back then there were so few 
podcast that it was a way that I could actually get heard, whereas now every comedian has a podcast. Right. I think this is even a podcast. <laughs> I think it it meets the RDA <laughs> of the Federal Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> yeah, recommendations for a podcast. Yeah. So the UCB networking situation. You were you went through the sketch or the improv. I went through the improv side of things. Okay. Uh, which you would not know now, seeing me perform. <laughs> The Daily Show writers have a uh, monthly show where we do improv there, and uh, Jubin Parang, who is now the head writer of The Daily Show, who has been on the Flop House a few times, mm-hmm. so you hear some scattered applause for him. Uh, he, <laughs> that's right. He also played Tanzer Silverview in our popular Adventure Zone crossover. Um, but he he's a great guy. He but he sort of runs the improv show over there and every time he does a little disclaimer ahead of time saying look our job is to write new satire we are not necessarily <coughs> improvisers so just keep that in mind as you watch the show and do do the audiences keep that in mind i th- i it's you know <laughs> i would say that those shows are an entertaining clusterfuck <laughs> We always bring in a couple of ringers, a couple of people who are like real, like who aren't like, on the show. Who like who? Uh, who's a ringer? There's a guy called Michael Kane, mm-hmm. who's n- no relation. <laughs> it's with a K and a Y. Uh, but he is uh, a UCB guy. Michael Kane? Yeah, he's not. He's not really Michael Kane. <laughs> he's a different man. That's the only. That's the only impression I do. So I have to break it out. That's that's rather convenient. Uh, yeah, I really backed <laughs> into that. I did not plan it. He's not showing off. <laughs> and yet. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but who who else? Uh, who else no, he's is another ringer. He's the main one. We okay. I mean we've got a couple people on staff who are like Chicago style improvisers okay. from way back. There's a guy called Ted Tremper who is amazing, and he, like, you know, people who have done this for years, and then there's people who just do it because they're on the show. And so that kind of combination makes it interesting because you've got people who know what they're doing to the nth degree, and you've got people who have no <laughs> clue sharing a stage. And it's kind of fun to see the people who know what they're doing coming out and rescuing the other people <laughs> on a regular basis. And you felt like you were one of those people who needed rescuing. Uh, I'm middling. I went. I like. I went through the whole. Uh, you know, I went through the whole thing, and I got like a call back to be on a house team once mm-hmm. at the UCB. But that was a decade ago, almost at this point. You know, and I haven't done improv in between because I got sick of trying to convince my friends to come see improv shows. <laughs> Like I literally would, we would do improv yeah. shows in a, a space that was a yoga studio during the day, mm-hmm. and we would put up risers uh, just to be a stage at night. And you know, there'd be five people in the improv troupe, and there'd be three people in the audience. Wh- what did you tell people to get them to show up? I think I just, I mean, you just say that you have a show, and there's at le- like if you if you invite. 
50 friends, there's one of them that's nice. <laughs> you know? But, I mean, this was like, you know, this is all like salad days stuff. Like, I also, I, I would perform in a theater. Yeah, if anyone's familiar with Show World at all, the sex uh, shop, and it used to have, I think, sex shows in the back. Um, so I performed at, there was a, there was a stage upstairs that uh, my friend Eric Marsizak turned into a comedy stage. Okay. It was called Above Kleptomania. I'm not sure why, uh, because it was above Show World. <laughs> Um, sure. And Show World's, Show World's also like the weirdest sex shop. It's got if you walk in, it's got like hanging from the ceiling. There's a monkey riding uh, clown, or maybe the other way around. But th- neither of those monkey? neither of those are things you want to see when you're getting a sex okay. thing. Uh, <laughs> clowns or monkeys are two of the least sexy things I think. And when you combine them, uh, yeah, yeah. But we did. A, we, there was a theater upstairs that, like, it was clearly a space that strippers used to be on because there were a bunch of mirrors around us. <laughs> they just removed the pole and turned it into a, a, a performance space, and so we would do comedy up there. And then every once in a while, there would be kind of a middle-aged man who would like walk up, poke his head in, <laughs> clearly be disappointed, <laughs> and walk away. That's improv. Yeah. No. Disappointed. Mm-hmm. That that is improv. So how do you how do you decide to get into T V writing? Is that <laughs> how do I decide it's more of a desperate desire <laughs> to get into T V writing. I mean uh, I mean there's a creative side to it, of course, and I've always like been driven to write comedy mm-hmm. but at the same time there's a very mercenary side to it where I just like there what is the way to make money doing this and there's one kind of big way and commercials. it's television yeah oh <laughs> right television and commercials i just i i just needed money <laughs> i really i have i have a lot of avarice in my soul mm-hmm. when i was a kid i had three heroes. One was Sherlock Holmes, as was mentioned before. Right, the detective. One was Robin Hood. And one was Scrooge McDuck. (laughs) Scrooge McDuck. Yeah. Just to have... What about Scrooge McDuck? How old an appeal for you? I mean... What does it say about this presidential election that (laughs) Scrooge McDuck (laughs) is one of your heroes? Now, all right... (laughs) I feel like you're making a Trump comparison. And Scrooge McDuck. I was McDuck, going for Bernie Sanders, but Scrooge McDuck has like this heart of gold beneath it all. Like <laughs> everything is gold. I <laughs> Scrooge McDuck and I have a lot in common. The avarice, the desire mm-hmm. to have a bin full of money that you can swim through. But also just the irascibility, the outward outward uh Outward coldness and negativity holding a heart of gold beneath everything. I like to think that, at least. 
So when you look at this presidential election, do you – I have so few thoughts about this presidential election, <laughs> which is an embarrassing thing to say to me. It's just to say to me. <laughs> no, that, you said it to me. That's <laughs> – it's a it's a running joke on the Flophouse that my mouth does not work, <laughs> and so that was very on brand <laughs> for me. To, but um, no, I just I, I am proud. Like there's a very there's a spectrum of writers at the show, and I feel like I'm one of the least political ones who work there. But I write good jokes, so they put up with that. You know, I I hear a lot of talk about the behind the scenes of late night TV, but I don't hear too much about how the Daily Show or the Nightly Show, for that matter, gets split up because there's not like a monologue team and a sketch team. Right. How how did the duties get delegated? I mean, the writers write pretty much everything except for when you see a – a field piece, which is when the correspondents actually go somewhere out in mm-hmm. the world, that's largely written by the field producer and the correspondents themselves. They they will occasionally, if they get stuck on something, uh, call a meeting with two of the writers to just sort of brainstorm ideas. But that's pretty much the breakdown. If you see, Everything that you see at the desk or in the studio is the writers, the staff writers. And then the other stuff is done in a different department. Okay. And you have to do that all within the span of a few hours from like 9 it's a in the morning until – pretty punishing schedule in terms of the time that you actually have to write the scripts um, because the morning meeting where we kind of decide what happens in the show ends around 10.15 and then – you break and you have from then to about 11.15 or uh, 11.30 to turn in a first draft of a script for the desk. And, um, and uh, you know, sometimes you started work on that the, the afternoon before. We have an afternoon meeting, too, where things get assigned out. But there's a lot of times when we're doing things day of. And the only reason that's possible is because there's a whole team of uh, segment producers who are giving us material. Like, we don't have to go digging for the material that we use, the sound bites and everything. We have people who have that stuff and show it to us and have the transcripts ready for us. And we have a researcher, Adam Chodikoff, who uh, is able to get anything that's maybe not in soundbite form or is harder to dig up. Uh, and he's also our, f- our main fact checker. But that all comes to us in a packet. And we can – it's our job to synthesize that quickly and to turn it into jokes. But uh, the the segment producers are the unsung heroes of the show. Like they're the ones who drive a lot of the ideas of what we do on the show. And they have a much harder job than the writers, I Okay. Think. How many how many shows did you uh, applied to before the Daily Show? Um, not a lot because just getting if you're not a known writer, just getting the chance mm-hmm. to apply to a show is a very hard thing. Um, you have to know someone pretty much, and that sounds 
shitty. Like that sounds like such nepotism, basically. But right, like your sister-in-law knows right. Charlie Grandy. <laughs> but but the reason it isn't is because the re- the way that you get to know people who can be in that position uh-huh. is through doing comedy. Like you have to be out there doing comedy all the time to find someone who at some point will be in a position to recommend you. And you have to be good at comedy or else they'll be embarrassed that they recommended you. You know, so uh, I got to uh, apply to The Daily Show because I had done shows with Elliot Kalin, my Flophouse co-host and former head writer of the show, current head writer of Mystery Science Theater, The Reboot. Um, He'll be here shortly. Uh, he's busy at the Peabody's <laughs> in a suit. He's busy accepting another award. But uh, I met him through, I did uh, shows downtown at a theater called Juby Hall, which was also by Eric Marsizak, the guy who did the show World Place. And uh, it's it's long dead. He's moved to Canada to uh, write video games. But, uh, but he uh, did this theater... And I did shows with Elliot that were basically talk shows on the stage. Okay. And so that was good training for what I eventually did. But but because I knew Elliot, I was invited to submit. But I, uh, other than that, I uh, had applied to the Colbert Report through my friend Frank Lesser, who I met also through comedy uh, writing for a dead humor magazine, as all humor magazines <laughs> eventually die, mm. called Jest, that my friend Rich Duncan... There's some fans wow, of Jest. Wow, some readers of Jest in the audience. It survived a while. It was around for four or five years before it uh, crashed. And uh, actually, uh, after Rich, the editor of it was Frank Santa Padre, who is now the co-host of the Gilbert Gottfried right. podcast, uh, which is part of PodFest. But um, through him, I applied to the Colbert Report, and I got s- close enough that I interviewed with Stephen. Okay. Um and this was back uh, when Allison, I forget her name, Silverman, was still the EP of the show, the first executive producer. And they were like the nicest people in the world. And I got through the entire interview process. And there was one point at which Stephen uh, switched the, his like vocal timbre from mm-hmm. like Stephen Colbert, the man, to the character Stephen Colbert. And I let out the most girlish giggle <laughs> in the world. And I'm convinced to this day that that's why I didn't get the job at the Colbert Report. Your giggle has a home at the Daily Show. <laughs> it just it just needed to find the right home. Yeah. I came in at the same time at the Daily Show as Juven. Uh, we both uh, applied, and he actually got the job ahead of me. But luckily, someone left the show right after that. And so they were too lazy to go through another hiring process. Really? They are just like, oh, we like this other guy, too. Let's hire him on. And uh, no, I think that makes sense. You know, like someone comes very close to getting hired, and they're like, hey, let's take them both, man. You've, you've gotten to win a lot of awards via well, the Daily Show. Well, two. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot compared to humans. Yeah. <laughs> do you re- not compared to what Elliot? Do you, what do you remember about the first award show you attended? 
The first time I I won I so I I won an Emmy, but it was at there's a weird thing that happens with uh, the writers for late night shows. They used to always be on the main Emmy telecast, um, and then there was a weird internal battle with the Directors Guild, and it's not important to sort of get into the details. The creative arts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they like there are people who wanted who were in the creative arts Emmys who wanted to be on the main show, and so what ended up happening was this compromise where half the time our category was on the creative arts Emmys, which is like the you know like when they when they have the Oscars and there's that, always that part where it's like we gave away these technical awards <laughs> earlier and they have like two really hot people that they're like you nerds will like these hot people. <laughs> It'll it'll take away a little of the sting that you're not on the main show right. to stare at these hot hosts, um, and so that was the first award show I went to. And the Creative Arts Emmys are the dullest thing in the world because <laughs> even the normal Emmys, like everyone, you know, like people who watch them at home, right. you can get up and pee at any time, <laughs> and you're talking, you're making fun of people's dresses. Like if you're at the normal Emmys, you just have to sit there. And and watch it. <laughs> you have to actually watch the show. But imagine that times boring. <laughs> and that's the creative arts semis. But then but we won. But you win. But we won. And it was like So it's exciting, you know, like it was much more exciting. I the second time we won was this last time for it was like John's last year and we won all of the categories we were nominated for, and it was thrilling because you get whisked backstage, and you know it's just room to room. Like it's like here you pick up your award, here you go in, and you stand in front of the press and answer a bunch of questions. I mean, you don't answer a bunch of questions. <laughs> John answers questions. They don't right. give a shit about what you have to say. <laughs> but then then you go into another room where for some reason they're giving out McDonald's shakes and fries, <laughs> and there's a big pile of candy that John Hodgman is uh, putting into a bag. And then you go into another room where there's Hodgman's more... Hodgman's a candy freak. Yeah. Okay. Well, like, th- yeah, like, then we go into another room where there's more <laughs> questions asked mm-hmm. and Hodgman sits on the edge of the stage eating his gummy worms. <laughs> and then you go into the next room where they get a picture taken. Like, it's, it's, you feel very important for a while. And as a writer, you don't get to have a lot of that showbiz, like, glamour right most of the time most of the time it's an office job it really is and so to have one like time a year if you're lucky if you're nominated where you're treated like a big shot is is quite something how much i know one of the great things about the emmys too for the writing staff is that you guys all do a special video right for the emmys yeah, that's fun. The monkey reel, it's called. The uh, monkey reel. Monkey reel. That's when that's you know they show that every year with the late night writers. You know, like they've got so many late night writers that they have to have some funny way of cycling through everybody. And the first year that I was there, we ha- we were all Muppets. Okay. That was one. So we got Which to. Which Muppet were you? Well, no, it was not like existing Muppets. It was oh. like the whatnots, basically. Okay. You like got to choose what looked like you <laughs> out of pre-made Muppet parts, and so I still have my Muppet in my office at work. Um, 
Is, but is, I can't remember. Is your Muppet more important than your Emmys? I th- it's more exciting, certainly. <laughs> I bring it out every once in a while to like annoy people around the office. Yeah. You know, I just poke it around the edge of some the door and start singing or whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Dan, one of the uh, one of the questions I ask all my guests, and um, I know you've already answered part of it by telling me the great advice you got from Charlie Grandy, which is "Don't be a dick." Yeah. But, uh, is there any other uh, lasting advice that's kind of stuck with you? Uh, not that other people have given me. There's stuff that I've learned about doing comedy that. I think are useful. I mean, like, there's a certain value to sticking to it. I mean, I mean, and that's sort of obvious, but I feel like there are a couple of metaphors that I, I think about. Like, I've been doing comedy for such a long time that it's sort of like you're at a party and people are leaving one by one because they're not getting where they want to go. So, like, the party gets smaller and smaller. And eventually, you're sticking around, and you get noticed. Or um, you're writing things. You're writing things for years, and it may feel like you're just writing those things and throwing them down a well for all the good that they're doing you. But eventually, that well gets filled up, and uh, and people see your work. And by that time, you're good at it. I mean, there's that phrase, like there's the. Um, aphorism that when the student is ready the master will appear and i think it's it's true that like maybe i mean like there are very talented people out there who aren't successful but also sometimes you bemoan not being successful and it's because you're not ready you know and if you work long enough you become ready and then when the opportunity presents itself you're in a position to pounce on it so when somebody comes to you and they're so new in the game that they don't know what they're doing and they ask you for advice, what's the first thing you tell them? Um, I would say get into a community of people. Like that's – I mean that was the advice with the UCB. Like as much as I maybe have mixed feelings about the system over there just because now it's so – overrun with people and it's it's based on spending so much money to be part of it um it really plugged me into like-minded people very quickly and it got me confident with doing comedy so i could split off then and do my own stuff and meet my own people and a rising tide you know lifts all ships and as you you know, do comedy, like, you see people that you did stuff with become more and more successful. Like, um, the people at Juvie Hall that I worked with, Elliot, you know, became head writer of The Daily Show. Uh, There was a guy called Rick Younger who is a very successful comedian who's, like, you see him on Good Morning America a lot. Um, There's my friend Sarah Schaefer, who I, I did... I wrote for her, and she had her show on MTV for a while. Um, And you see, like, the people that you came up with becoming successful. And if you're friends with them, they're in a position to help you. And so 
it's about getting out there and being with people and not being a dick <laughs> while you're there with them and uh, and doing that work, you know? Well, Dan, thanks for not being a dick and uh, sitting down with me. I, Thank I, you. I really appreciate this. Dan McCoy, everybody. Thanks, everyone. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.